Hello and welcome to Jured, a podcast of the Jured Foundation. This is a podcast about legal rights, the practice of law, people, structures, systems, and social relations. So where do we begin? Yes, Jured, that's our name. What does it mean? You might be wondering. Good question. And if you have a good idea, we're always open to suggestions. We think it means juridical education. And that's the subject of this podcast. Around 40 years ago, a troop of activist lawyers in Ontario started the Law Union of Ontario, which was a left-wing association of lawyers and other interested legal people. They're still around today. They've fought battles, they've won battles, they've lost battles, and have a storied tradition. In the midst of those travails, other things happened, including the founding of the Jured Foundation. It was approximately 40 years ago, but we're now just coming into our own. We're a non-for-profit charity, and that's the reason why you won't hear any advertising on our podcast. Our aims include promoting legal rights, and the practice of law, and more generally, legal education. We understand the law to be broadly construed, looking at it through a pluralist lens. So that means looking at structures, systems, and social relations. And we look forward to getting to know you. So over the next 12 episodes, you'll hear different voices from Ontario and more broadly presenting ideas, and these legal practitioners and allies will force you to consider your reality. We hope you'll enjoy. Our episode today is about law and organizing. First, we'll hear from Jenny Coe, a nurse and academic who works with the community of Moss Park in Toronto. Drug users making use of a safe injection site. What happens? As many of you know, setting up such a thing is no simple matter in Canada, in spite of the fact that we're in the midst of an opioid crisis. Next, we'll look at Ontario's social benefit regime with Jackie Esmond of the Income Security and Advocacy Centre. She breaks down the struggle for social rights in part by looking back to the 1990s. Her perspective gives weight to organizing and legal practice and how the two work together or how they can work together. These two episodes are taken from the Law Union of Ontario's Fall 2018 conference. If you like the content, and enjoy listening to it. The Law Union is having another conference this upcoming May 2019. Details to follow. Now here is Jenny Coe. So I just wanted to start with just like a little bit of a background of the Moss Park OPS history and then speak just a little bit about what I've learned through that experience and uh, how that might apply to other fields and um, to sort of advocacy in general. To start with, the Moss Park OPS, um, the overdose prevention site, has an underlying sort of harm reduction philosophy that may be counter to some of the harm reduction ideas or definitions you might have heard in other contexts. The philosophy is largely that of a grassroots organizing, community-based response. Uh, It's really grounded in people who use drugs providing the solutions for the community and responding directly to the needs of, of that community. The Moss Park OPS was sort of a direct action event that turned into a service that turned into a community hub, but it was a um, series of tents 
set up in Moss Park in response to the escalating overdose crisis. The tents were set up on August 12th, 2017 in Moss Park after a lot of frustrating meetings with government, city government, provincial government, federal government, and a lot of inaction on the part of that government. The tents were set up by a community of folks who are largely people who use drugs uh, and, and their allies, allies, folks like myself who are nursing and other health professionals. The uh, service there operated every day for six hours a day and while it wasn't intended to continue, it did continue for 11 months in the park. Initially intense and then when the weather turned it got uh, really hairy to be in the tents and uh, we lost many of them. We went through like 52 tents, almost. But eventually we got a trailer donated to us from QP, which is great. The, the whole endeavor was really an action to respond to mounting opiate deaths. Probably many of you have heard about the kind of statistics that are happening here in Ontario. Between 2015 and 2016, the number of deaths rose 19%. The 2017 statistics, even with a whole bunch of activism, a whole bunch of services that have been uh, put into place, there's still a 6% increase in deaths from 2016. So for Ontario last year, there were 1,265 people who passed away due to opiate overdose. From my experience as a nurse, I was not part of the initial sort of like harm reduction community that set up the tents, but through negotiation with the police, so it was an illegal uh, endeavor, police required nurses on site to operate the service. That was one of their their requirements in order to leave the site alone. And so that's where I, I came in. And I got to spend a lot of time with people who were using drugs and then uh, resuscitating them if they overdosed. That experience has been really, uh, it's really changed my life, really, to be honest. And I had a lot of time to chat with folks and we chatted about all sorts of things um, from like drug use and people's personal histories to like folk songs of Newfoundland and various other things. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what I experienced made me think about my own positionality um, as like a health professional, as somebody who has, uh, you know, in nursing you don't really think you have any power, but re really you do. And to think about that power that I do have, the knowledge that I do have, and how confronted with this population of awesome people, this like amazing community of humans whose everyday actions are uh, stigmatized heavily in in society and then also criminalized, it became obvious to me that there was some sort of moral imperative to use the, the resources that I have, the power that I had to do something, to support them, to make it better in some sort of way. So that was sort of like a fundamental learning for me in, in spending time with people in this sort of strange illegal tent set up in the park. While we were in the park, we saw 9,062 visits to the injection service, so that's over an 11-month period. We intervened in 251 overdoses and made a, like, really built a lot of community. It wasn't really the intention to, as I was sort of saying, the intention was to, like, put pressure on the government and make the government move on programs that it had approved but not let begin, but really there was so much that happened in that space of community in creating a space that was safe from you know, criminalization, but also safe in terms of being a non-judgmental, supportive space where people could do the thing that is so shameful. It's just a magical time. And eventually we did manage to pressure the government uh, to start a OPS program, an overdose prevention funded program. The Liberal government eventually modeled a program after our services and created an application process and eventually we applied for and received funding uh, as a satellite site of South Riverdale Community Health Center and we became a legitimate funded service and we moved inside 
And we've got bathrooms, which is <laughs> miraculous. And we've been inside since July 3rd, just around the corner from the park. Since we've been inside, we've seen uh, 4,952 visits to our injection service. And what is kind of one of the many remarkable things, and I could talk about a million different kinds of things, but we've only had 42 overdoses since we moved inside which is wacky given our previous stats. And we don't have concrete evidence of what's happening there, but the rate per capita sort of visits to overdose ratio has really plummeted since we moved inside. And I think there's a lot of things going on there that are related to the kind of community space that we've built. We have this beautiful space that used to be an art gallery, which is really wacky, but it's big, it's spacious, it's calm, it's cozy, it's not very medical looking. And it, it's a space where people can take their time, where they tell us that they feel safe, which is like amazing. And I think that a lot of that has to do with why we see so many fewer overdoses now. In our current iteration, there's lots of things that are happening. Pressures from the government. Some of you may have heard of the, the conservative government's new plan for the kinds of services that I provide is to make them incredibly high barriers. So they've eliminated the overdose prevention program period. They also eliminated the supervised consumption program, which was a higher barrier version of the OPS program. And they replaced the whole shandangle with um, their consumption and treatment program, which is actually even more onerous than any of the previous kinds of programs and has specific criteria embedded within it that are arbitrary, not evidence-based, and target existing sites. There's a whole bunch of things that some legal folks are supporting us with because there's a number of things in there that are discriminatory and you know, my legal jargon is poor, bad. <laughs> um, but uh, we're getting help with that, so thank you, people. And I think there are, even, even with that context of, of this conservative government rolling out this terrible program that is actually going to actually cause more people to die, there are things embedded within that that are wins based on the kinds of experience, the kind of work that the community that I'm embedded in has been doing. <laughs> One of those is that the... the uh, consumption and treatment guidelines actually say harm reduction and they talk about how harm reduction is effective and saves lives, which has never happened with a conservative government. So that's a huge thing. And there's other things that have also been helpful in navigating this process, but a lot of that is because of the advocacy of the community in which all of this started. We've you know, done a lot of things to organize, um, and like me from my position and the power that I have, try to support people to do that kind of thing. But we've organized marches, we built a heck of a lot of crosses and put them in Queen's Park lawn, which is great. That was really fun. And all of that stuff is really effective. I've, I've really learned, like, come from an academic background and believe in academia to a certain point, but being involved in this kind of direct action has really shown how much more effective that is and how uh, there's, there's so much power in breaking rules and building community, and those two things together are, are pretty magical. Um, and we have like these really strong, at least in the work that I'm doing, it's pretty life for death. We have these strong moral imperatives to fight for people's right to live, to live dignified lives, and to have like just the basic access to healthcare that the more privileged of us take for granted. That is my two cents. That was Jenny Cole on the fight to keep the Moss Park safe injection site open. Now let's turn to Jackie Esben. She'll offer further insights, but turning to a more legal-heavy analysis of the social welfare regime in Ontario and what she believes people need to 
think about and do now to protect those substantive rights. So I'm here to talk about social assistance under the Doug Ford government. Um, I'm going to start by talking a little bit about where we are now and what's coming. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I think we can learn from the legal strategies that were employed under the Mike Harris government. And I'm going to emphasize at the end the need to organize for change for all the reasons that Jen just said. So, okay, so Doug Ford tells us that the social assistance regime in Ontario is broken. And he's really, he's not wrong about that. It's one thing I actually agree with him on. And I could think of no better way to illustrate that than telling you the story of Grant Faulkner. Grant Faulkner died when the plywood shack he was living in caught fire on a frigid night in Toronto. He was receiving the bare minimum of social assistance, around $200. He got no money for housing and was homeless. A jury at the coroner's inquest this year examined his death and looked at the role that the social assistance program played in that death. And made a number of recommendations, including the very important one that social assistance should actually be tied to the cost of food, the cost of housing, really revolutionary idea, and I think highlights how incredibly inadequate social assistance is in this province and that it causes deaths. It's a life or death matter. So no, Doug Ford is not wrong when he says social assistance is broken but I'm sure he and I would disagree very strongly about what the problems are and what the solutions will be. And you may know this government announced in July that it's carrying out a what it called a 100-day review of the social assistance program and was going to come back with all the solutions. That 100 days ended on November 8th, um, but they have told us November 22nd, so this week, they're going to be announcing how they're going to make the lives of social assistance recipients even worse than they are now. <coughs> the government has revealed very little about what its plans are, so I'm not going to speculate. There's a lot of anxiety and fear with the communities that we work with. All we know for sure, based on what the minister has said publicly, is that they're probably going to look at privatizing the administration in some ways, so um, looking at worse conditions for work for the people who work with social assistance recipients. And they keep reiterating this idea that the best social program is a job. So they've said, don't worry, we're not returning to Mike Harris workfare, but the best social program is a job. I have no idea what that means, but I don't think it's good. So we'll find out on November 22nd what exactly is in store, but I think it's important to emphasize this program is already the barest possible minimum. It isn't even the barest possible minimum. It's, uh, we're starting at a very low point. And this government has already made some cuts. One thing that may be coming um, this week, uh, a bill from, it's a private member's bill from a Tory, but has reached its past second reading and is now uh, going to committee, is an act that would ban people who are convicted of certain criminal offenses from getting social benefits and would also uh, deem their children to be in need of protection. Yeah. They say they're going after terrorists, 
with this uh, bill, and terrorists are not a sympathetic target for us to be able to organize around, so it's like an easy target for them, but it's a really dangerous precedent when they're talking about disentitling, disentitling people from social assistance. One of, the, one of the things that most people know about is that they canceled the planned 3% increase to rates that was supposed to happen this fall and replaced it with only a 1.5% increase. They've cut much more than that, and a lot of people don't know all the details because there was a suite of about 20 other improvements that were supposed to happen to social assistance this fall that were canceled. They canceled a plan that would allow people who are working on social assistance to keep more of their earnings. They're uh, not going ahead with plans to cover the cost for recipients to travel to see indigenous healers when they need them. They're no longer allowing people to keep gifts without having those clawed back from their social assistance. They're keeping the current definition of spouse in the legislation, which basically deems people to be living in a spousal relationship after they've lived together for only three months. Um, they were actually going to change it so it was in line with family law that doesn't impose these kinds of spousal um, obligations until uh, three years. So that's just some of it. There's, there's a list of many other things that were cut. And at the same time, they announced the cancellation of the basic income pilot. It was mentioned earlier today. This pilot was supposed to run for another two years in four communities in this province. It guaranteed around $17,000 to a single person per year without any strings attached, still below the poverty line. But they've canceled that program. We can disagree, perhaps we do disagree in this room, about the merits of a basic income uh, program from a political perspective, but canceling that program has caused intense suffering to the participants in that program, many of whom had rented homes that they can't afford any longer when the program is canceled, or had gone back to school in the hopes that they could um, improve their education during that three-year period, and that rug has just been pulled out from under them. Now, when that announcement was made about the cancellation of the pilot in July, my clinic got a lot of calls from people in the community, from agencies and so on. And one of the things that I kept, the question I kept getting was like, how can we challenge this in the courts? And maybe that's not surprising because I work in a legal clinic. I, I, you know, I don't know how much of that was being debated within the, the basic income community itself as a, the main strategy that should be taken. Uh, but you may know that there's a lawyer in Lindsay who has in fact started two legal proceedings to challenge the cancellation of the basic income pilot. The first will act is a judicial review application. It's going to be heard on January 25th. The second is a class action. It'll only go ahead if the judicial review application is unsuccessful, and that will take a very long time. So with all these calls that we were getting about, you know, what can we do legally to challenge Ford's agenda around basic income, around social assistance, it really got me thinking. I'm a lawyer who tends to not believe in the legal system or legal strategies, so um, it's, it's really challenging to me to figure out how to respond to those questions. And so what I did was I went back and looked at some of the, the major social assistance cases from the Mike Harris era, and what were people doing then, and what worked and what didn't. So Mike Harris is most famous in the social assistance world for the 21.6% cut to rates that he implemented in 1996. And still today, that is one of the biggest issues for social assistance recipients. We've never caught up um, to that massive cut 
in the mid-90s. And there was a case called Mass, Mass versus Ontario, which was a direct challenge to that 21.6% cut. The, the, lawyer, the really awesome lawyers involved in that one, and they raised um, some charter arguments around the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, about the right to equality. That challenge was unsuccessful, and the reasons why I think are very important in terms of what we can hope to get out of the legal system. The court said that the charter does not provide a right to a minimum level of social assistance. And in fact, there's no obligation on government to provide a social assistance program at all. And you'll see this thread running through other cases. And there was, in fact, a Supreme Court of Canada case a few years later that addressed the constitutionality of social assistance in Quebec. And what these cases say over and over again is that there's no positive obligation on government to provide services under Section 7, under Section 15. It only imposes an obligation on government not to deprive people of those rights in a way that's not in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. So that's very disheartening, and I think that's probably where my cynicism about legal strategies for addressing the Ford government is stemming from. But there were, in fact, some successes, some legal successes from that era. One of the other really awful reforms that Harris brought in in that time was uh, lifetime and temporary bans for people from receiving social assistance when they had been convicted of welfare fraud. And there were legal challenges that were brought to that that led to some success. So, and I think one case de deserves specific mention, and that's the case of Kimberly Rogers. Do people here remember the case of Kimberly Rogers? Yeah, it's a really awful and tragic case. So uh, Kimberly Rogers was, she lived in Sudbury, she was uh, receiving welfare, and she was going back to school, college. She was actually doing very well. She was getting student loans. Now, when she started college, it was okay to get student loans and welfare. And Mike Harris changed that rule. So when she continued to collect the student loans, she didn't report them to welfare, and it's not at all clear that she understood that she had to, that she didn't understand that law had changed. But when this came to light, she was charged criminally. She was convicted of welfare <coughs> fraud, and her welfare was cut off immediately. She was 22 months pregnant at the time. She was... 22 weeks. <laughs> Thank you. 22 weeks, yeah. I don't have any kids, so I'm not totally sure how it works. She was, so she was pregnant. Why don't we just leave it at that? Um, she, was, she had no income. She couldn't eat. She was going to be evicted from her home. And a group of lawyers came, came to work with her. They were successful in getting an injunction from a court, and the, the welfare program was ordered to continue to pay her benefits while her constitutional challenge to that ban was proceeding through the courts. So it was an interim motion. And there were a few others that, did, that were successful in the same way. That's not the end of her story, unfortunately, because she's, she started getting welfare benefits again, but it was only the $520 a month that single people got at that time. And ultimately, she died. Uh, she, was living in, she was sentenced to house arrest, uh, and she died one day in the middle of a, a terrible heat wave in Sudbury. She couldn't leave her home. Uh, she had very little, and she died. 
So I think, I mean, that's a story we have to remember. We have to remember Kimberly Rogers. We have to remember that these laws have life and death impacts. And so while she was successful legally, it didn't address the fundamental problem uh, with this program, that it's inadequate. It doesn't allow people to live healthy lives with dignity. I'll mention one other success in the legal uh, field from that era, and it was a case that ultimately was decided while the liberals were in power, but it was addressing uh, some of the problems that Mike Harris had created. And this was with applying for disability benefits. The process was very lengthy. It could take six months, eight months, 10 months, 12 months to have your application for disability benefits decided. And if you were successful, you only got a little bit of retroactive pay. So basically, the province was profiting from delaying the time that it was taking to process these applications. And there was a case, a class action that was brought that was challenging that process. It's called Wareham. And that was, it, it didn't actually have to go all the way to a hearing. The government, as it often does, brought a summary judgment motion to try and have the case thrown out for having no merit. Uh, the Court of Appeal said, well, this piece of it actually does have merit um, around people's procedural rights. And so it was going to allow the case to continue forward. And ultimately, because of that legal work, they changed the process. And you know, it's not perfect, but those of us who do work with the ODSP program today will know it doesn't take 12 months in most cases to get uh, disability benefits and you're paid back all the way uh, from the time that you apply if you're ultimately successful. Victories are not impossible through the courts, but I think what I take from these stories is that at best are these legal strategies are gonna allow us to tinker around the edges to address discrete, perhaps small problems in the, in the program, but the kind of fundamental transformative change that really addresses the inadequacy, that addresses economic justice, I don't think we can look. I'm not, I, I know we can't look to the courts to get them. And there's a real risk in this time that we're going to look to the courts as a shortcut to address uh, all the horrible things that Doug Ford and his government is going to do, but there aren't shortcuts for social change. And that's why, to me, the kind of organizing that Jen talked about, it's like organizing, building public support for a more just world has to be the focus of our energies. And we can't, you know, legal strategies have to support that if where we use them. This government is not going to be persuaded by rational argument, I don't think, or evidence, or legal principles. I firmly believe that only organizing opposition is going to do that. And I think we have to remember the majority of people in this province didn't vote for Doug Ford. Not even the majority of people in his own party <coughs> voted for him as leader. And we have allies, we have people who agree with us, and we have people that we can persuade to agree with us. In the Mike Harris era, there were a lot of losses in that time, but there were some successes in organizing that we can remember. You may remember, I already mentioned Mike Harris Work Fair and how um, awful that program was. <coughs> it was organizing that stopped Work Fair that made it impossible for Work Fair to work. So groups like OCAP and other organizations picketed businesses and organizations that were taking, uh, they were participating in the workfare program. So they actually made it impossible for that program to work because 
businesses started pulling out, organizations started pulling out, and it couldn't continue. We have to remember victories like that, and we may like and where those pressure points are, where we have power to stop these policies and to roll them back. I think we also have to, and there was talk about this already today, draw the links between all the attacks that we're seeing and how they're connected and how we can be in solidarity with one another. I was at an OCAP town hall this week that was talking about social assistance. And, you know, the fear and the anxiety in that room was palpable. People are scared, and they should be. More people are going to die, I believe, because of Ford's policies. But I did leave that room feeling actually hopeful and inspired. Because while people are scared, they're also willing to resist. And one of the speakers said something really important that I took away from, uh, with me. He said, divided we starve, united we eat. And I think we really need to take that to heart and see the connections between all of these fights. Uh, and we need to be working together to make sure that Ford's not elected the next time and to build a vision for a better world. So there you have it. That was episode one, Voices, Organizing, and the Law. If the content interested you, the Law Union is having their annual conference at Victoria College of University of Toronto on May 24th and 25th of 2019. Come one, come all. Should be a good time. Google the Law Union for more details. If you have more questions for us here at the podcast, the Jured Co-op podcast, please email us at juredfoundation at gmail.com. That's J-U-R-E-D foundation. You can follow us on Twitter at J-U-R underscore E-D. And we'll soon have some other media. Looking forward to seeing you soon.